Hashtag Biden, okay? I'm saying it now. I see it. Shit. Take that, Craig. Craig Biden, he's of the Biden dynasty. And he's not the cool one, like Hunter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love how they thought that was going to, like, sink his campaign. They were like, look at Joe Biden's cool son. He's kind of hot and he smokes weed all the time. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't as, as... Compromat goes. It wasn't the most effective compromat, and and there's actual stuff out there about Hunter Biden that actually makes Joe Biden look bad. Welcome to Truanon. Yep. <laughs> um, this is what's happening now, apparently, on this podcast. I uh, so obviously we took uh, a little bit of an unexpected hiatus. There was uh, well, part of it was should have been expected. The uh, the U.S. election was. Uh, motherfucking stressful, uh, yeah. to put it very shortly, especially like, obviously for people who live outside of America, there's a unique stress to American elections. And then for people who live in America, there's <laughs> again, a unique kind of stress to us elections. And this show has both of those kinds of people. So, yeah. um, you get the rainbow, the rainbow of election and stress. And so it was like, hey, do you want to talk about a book? And it's like, no, I want to try to drink myself to sleep. And it's like, oh, yeah, same. Yeah, okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe next week. Um, uh, and what's funny is that this actually does tie into what we were um, planning to, to to focus us on. We actually came up with the idea for uh, what we're going to be talking about today in the midst of literally our struggles to, to produce another episode. And then yeah. we had some tech trouble and stuff like that, which led to, and it's, specifically dealing with issues of um, anxiety and anxiety response. Something that we have covered, me and Gareth covered that a ton. Me and Eden have already covered that a ton. It's hard to be alive in the world and not have that interface with things. And it's hard to read literary fiction or science fiction or fantasy or horror about the human condition and not have it tap into those like primal bubbling emotions underneath Mm -hmm. i actually um just yesterday recorded um an episode of the invisible oranges podcast where we're talking about year-end records um not trying to make a totalized list just throwing out names of like these are great records doesn't matter where they place these are just good ass records yeah and brought up the ulcerate record which i think pretty much I, i was surprised that I didn't see it on the revolver list that leaked early, but I could have just missed it. So I was pretty sure that everyone loved that record, but I was explaining to, to someone on the show who, who wasn't as big of a fan, like liked it, but wasn't blown away. Like, here's why people love ulcerate, like capital L love. And it's precisely their ability to capture that kind of feeling that like that roiling kind of like boiling water, in your chest uh Mm -hmm. but likewise that like it like there's also a cold stone like lodged in your heart that weird like paradoxical very physical manifestation of anxiety like they just capture that in sound so perfectly and while a lot of bands will cloak that thought in metaphor they're naming the record stare into death and be still is just they just said it they just put it right on the tin they're like this is what this band is about and that's a. Uh, I think I can speak for Eden when I say that both of us have been struggling with that quite a bit recently. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, obviously on one end, there's 
normal life stuff. We're both in our 30s, and I think a lot of our listeners are either in or around their 30s. Some are a little bit older. Um, so there's certain life stuff that I don't have to explain to you that just sort of comes with that territory where thinking about things like your savings account, um, you know, financial stability for your future, play, you know, certain things like that that are really boring, but also very, very anxiety inducing. Um, I, think, especially I think for me, the the graphic metaphor that I find most useful to describe a lot of this stuff is the J-curve, or rather inverted J-curve. So if you think about a graph, slowly things are, are going up and things are stabilizing, and then you reach some sort of plateau, right, where you're fine, you've done a lot already, it's not your 20s, you're not like frantically running around trying to get your life into some sort of shape, but then there's this tiny plateau, and when you look at when you zoom out, it's just a plateau, but when you're focused on that end of the graph, it looks like a spiral, right? It looks like a, a free fall. Um, and there's a lot of stress, you know. Am I just coasting along? Am I just used to the routine? Is this what I want to be doing? Am I settling for less than what I could do? Um, stuff like that. And admittedly, that's where things like, admittedly, that's part of where like this podcast came from is at some point, um, b before I hopped on, and I hopped on pretty early into the show's life, but Gareth and I have talked about this a bit, but it's like after the Brexit vote and the U.S. election that put Trump into power, looking around and being like, fuck, I don't want to do, I want to do something. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's going to be helpful or not. I just, I am filled with this kind of anxious ball and it needs to go somewhere. And yeah. so just picking something. And then honestly, we do a lot of those things in our lives. Everyone does. Um, it's not always something like a podcast or doing writing, but sometimes picking up a hobby, sometimes picking like picking up a, a fitness routine, things like that. Some of them stick, some of them don't. We, we kind of over emphasize um, in the moment, the value of like, we had that, we had that wave of like, oh, all these people are going to start making podcasts about this thing and you don't really need to make a podcast. We don't really need any more mediocre. That kind of became a kind of toxic uh, vibe that people were throwing out because it's like no one's making you listen to these podcasts and a lot of them <laughs> are going to sink beneath the waves pretty quick and the people who are making them are vaguely aware of that. Just let them get it out of their system. Like It's not like you're constantly being besieged by them, like you're going out every day and like 9 to 12 podcasts are playing simultaneously around you against your will. That's not happening. Like In, in the current social media climate, you could just not follow or engage with certain things it's it's very easy let um or like and also you go yeah and also um i'm reminded of this metaphor by francis bacon um from ben salem that's like his atlantis thing like in uh, the the novel is called new atlantis and on this island there's like a ton of scientists and there's a scene where this visitor from england gets to see someone chiseling a statue and beneath the statue being chiseled there's a lot of people shoveling the debris right from the that is made when the artist is chiseling the statue out of the block and it's a metaphor for art and science right not everyone has to be 
excellent or a genius to participate in art. Not, not everybody has to be like this maverick that shoots right to the core of a subject. There's also great value in um, you know, talking around subjects, talking about stuff that other people don't. Even if you're quote-unquote mediocre, which is a very ugly term, I think, um, I agree. It, it still has value. And I'd go one further to say, like, if you think that only the elite of every topic should exist, then, my friend, you have bought into the narrative of consumerism um, that says that people should always be judging themselves against the market, against others. They should always be competing. They should always be striving to be more. It's fine to make 400 episodes of a podcast and they're all exactly the same and you don't grow and you don't get better. If that's what you need, if that's what you want to do, that is totally fine. And like we we don't have the same kind of judgmentalism necessarily against like home cooks, like people who aren't, they're not a chef. They just like to make dinner for their family. It's like, okay. It yeah. doesn't need to be a five-star meal. There's something about, and maybe someone who doesn't know you whatsoever would be like, their food is terrible, but you know, it, it's meaningful to the people in their lives. Or likewise, yeah. we have that with amateur art. I mean, in music is something that obviously we're both familiar with and a lot of our listenership will prepare to roll your eyes at the most obvious uh, thing in the world. This is what the whole punk eruption was about. Like yeah. literally it was this point of like, you shouldn't have to be a virtuoso. Now, some people took it. I mean, we see this a lot. Some people take this a step too far and say, therefore virtuosos don't exist or there's no value whatsoever in being one. And that that's obviously not really true, but it's more that it's not a totalizing value. It's not that, the only way to be good is to be that. It's like that's one avenue of being good or interesting. But there's also something about uh, sincerity. There's something about um, like personability. There's something about even just it being for you in a way that doesn't hurt other people. Yeah. I think tying it back to mental states and mental health, that when you, you know, this has become a byword, it's become a gimmick, you know, the world's self care. But that's what self-care means. Right? It means that you do things not because of their perceived value or the attributes that they show you to have, but rather you do them because they feel good. And you do them because they feel good. It's almost like the anti, anti-Kant moralism, right? It's not that what we ought to do necessarily is what we don't derive any pleasure or benefit from, but the opposite. What we ought to do is that thing that gives us pure pleasure and pure satisfaction, not in a hedonistic way of you know bodily pleasures, etc., but something that is for ourselves, something that is devoid of its quality. I do it because it makes me feel good, and it doesn't really matter if it's great. And the way that this ties back for me into the the like political and social shape of the world is obviously you can't be in this world <clears throat> in 2020 and not see things like the rising tide of fascism, uh, police brutality, um, colonialism run amok, both inside and outside of states, uh, the uh, oppression of, of sex workers, the anti, uh, anti-trans violence that passes through. I like, you, we, I, we can list this stuff forever and you probably know all yeah. of it and it would be really 
tedious and probably like it kind of whack for me as a says that white dude in America to try try to tell you guys all about that. Like it, you know about it, but obviously it fills you with a certain amount of anxiety because you feel this. If you have if you have a moral compunction that that like Kantian or a Cartesian voice in the back of your head that's like you're in the world too. You should go like at least try to do something about this stuff. It's very easy to get quickly, very easy, mind-bogglingly easy to get overwhelmed by the enormity of little it feels like any kind of effort you can do is. Like, how can I stop police rampantly murdering black people? Like, and uh, th there's there's an amount of chauvinism, obviously, in the thought that I can personally stop this. But it's that paradox doesn't go away just because you know it's there. Like, if you care about something, that there's still that that voice that's like, you know, what can you do to... And there isn't always an immediate answer. Sometimes there's no answer whatsoever. This is actually what, like, mass movements and mass politics are about, is that it's emphatically not about the atomic individual's action. It's about the masses of people. And I can know all of that. I've read, all, I've read a bunch of books about this stuff. But still, like, it... There is a human level of anxiety, especially if you're prone to things like a generalized anxiety disorder, like you have a neurochemical imbalance that makes these things more frequent for you, that it it can quickly shut you down. Like someone just re reached over and flipped a light switch, and you're just non-functional now. Medication can help. Medication's helped me a lot. I've gotten back on medication in the past couple months because of this stuff, uh, but it's not a magic fix. Therapy can help a lot, obviously, but it's not a magic fix. Learning about things like mass politics, getting involved in activism, things like that can help, but it's not, you know, on and on and on with this stuff. At some point, this is a latent part of the human experience that sometimes we try to push away um, for, for decent reasons. I mean, it's where things like, like, trigger warnings and stuff come from is this thought that we should <clears throat> just throw this stuff in people's face 24 seven, because that can be incredibly emotionally difficult and make life harder than it needs to be unnecessarily, which is a totally fair point. But likewise, the double-edged sword of this, the other edge is there is a strong necessity for visibility of these things. Yeah. That like, I mean, that's why I'm as open as I am about things like having had a suicide attempt, having gone into a ward temporarily, having dealt with mental breakdowns. And like, I'm, if I'm honest, I'm haunted a lot by the thought that like, I work in a coffee shop. I'm happy with my job. I do well, but mm -hmm. you know, it's the thought of when I was 14, was that the path I was on? Or am I on that path now? Because I completely melted at some point earlier in my life. And took my own future away from me. I can't deny that I think about that a lot, like, yeah. like very, very obsessively. Um, <laughs> everyone has these things. I don't think I've actually suffered tremendously more than most people. I still think I'm probably in the upper 50%. Pretty comfortable with that assertion, considering all the horrible things that happen in the world. That's sobering that technically all of that would still make me lucky and that, you know, it's it's hard to balance those things, but it becomes... It feels necessary sometimes to grapple directly with these topics. Yeah. Like like the episodes we've had recently dealing with um like climate collapse. 
um, and books that have grappled with humans' relation to ecology, especially in rejection of the eco-fascist narrative that we just need to have less humans. It's like, no, that's not, not a that's thing. That's not it. I mean, I think for me, this desire to, or, or the duplicate desire to look at a thing, but also not look at it at the same time, and the dynamics that, that kind of creates is is really well will a lot of these things come for me the kind of anxiety disorder that i suffer from has a lot to do with um sanity i'd like am i sane and that and that comes to me from having mental illness in my family my dad suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder from one of israel's many wars well specifically quote unquote the bad war right yom kippur war um israel's vietnam if you want to call it that but the comparison is broken um and there's always been this question for me like did i inherit it do i suffer from the same problems and there's a verification paradox there right like if you think about it too much it starts to mess with something that should be obvious right like a sane person even though that doesn't exist right as a category but what we imagine to be a sane person is someone who doesn't ask themselves that question even asking the question am i sane hides some sort of admission of failure at least for me so the the gaze like looking at your own mental health inherently says that something is wrong with your mental health it's a, a category that were it to be a hundred percent okay it would be invisible or at least that's how we conceptualize it not necessarily true or healthy in its own right that conception of it but that's the way that it often um is told to us and then so a lot of my by the way i think we'll put a trigger warning on the episode description but i'm going to just say it again like i'm going to be describing an episode like an anxiety episode so trigger warning um for me a lot of a lot of these episodes and sensations begin with that question am i okay am i doing okay and then the answer is, well, you don't know, do you? Right? Like, even if I, I, the internal voice, even if I told you that you are doing okay, you'd find some way to cast out, now wouldn't you? Now, isn't that bad? And then that's where the spiral starts. Oh, that is bad. Okay, then what does that mean? Does that mean I'm mentally ill? Does that mean that I can't trust my senses? Does that mean that I need to go back to therapy? Does that mean that I'm unreliable to myself um and the interesting thing just to close this off is this that i right that second me that it plays a role in this um and and this second i is something that has been discussed in philosophy for well you might say since the, the <laughs> dawn of there's like stuff in socrates that is about that second i like if you think about the uh the triple, the triple parts of the soul, right? It's also like a fragment itself. But more specifically, started... 
Yeah. There's a lot of really interesting parallels as well, uh, that a lot of the dialogues written by people like Plato and Socrates are formal representations of that, that obviously he's not speaking to um, to his teacher, that this is the multiple eyes manifesting. Yeah, definitely. And all these things, I think, started to crystallize um, inside of German idealism. Um, they did a lot of work around this, specifically an underread philosopher called Fichte, who he's he's well, he's terrible because he was a German idealist, but he's also great uh, because he had some really interesting ideas that that prefaced a lot of um, the 20th century's lingual term. Um, but he had this idea of capital I equals lowercase i, and there's a dialectic between these two parts. And there's a gaze between them. So it's kind of like Freud's ego and superego, but not really. It's a copy of, of a thing, the, the, the self, and it is equal. It's the same thing, but it has different characteristics. Now, if, you, uh, if you've heard our recent episodes, you know that I'm going to say Deleuze now. Um, I think it's inescapable, right? The same that recent episodes. No, no, we always Deleuze is a constant here at Death. Yeah, that's what the D and S are for. Deleuze, (laughs) Deleuze. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I think he has a lot of really interesting things to say about this similar similar difference or 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 replicating difference. But I think Fichte and Deleuze and others who who've read who've wrote about this in the past, it all boils down to what I said, right? That the perspective is a difference machine. Um, you can't look at the self without creating a, a copy of the self which you look at. You never dig deep enough and retrieve the Cartesian eye, right? The Cartesian pure ego. Um, now, to all of this, my therapist would say, you're rationalizing again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've like heard the, that one. <laughs> yeah, like the main thing that she did for me, like she was, I haven't seen her in a long while, which is good. Um, I, I last saw her when I had, um, 2012 is when my anxiety flared up. Um, and one of the main things that she would do for me is tell me to shut the fuck up. Uh, <laughs> shut up. You're trying to take something that is unutterable in, in in intellectual terms. And because you're so scared of it, um, you're, you're trying to put it into little philosophy boxes. So you've gotten pretty clever at it because those boxes are now like trapezoids and tesseracts or whatever, and they're really intricate, but they're still, they're still boxes. So maybe the last thing I want to say here, like, so you've read the episode title, so you know we're building up to, to House of Leaves. Um, this is something that the book and, and others in the genre do really well. You cannot describe an anxiety attack. Like the very first second you utter a, a word to describe it, you've already minimized it. There's something total in the experience, something that is um, beyond um, language, right? And that's why it, it can be so annoying when someone that doesn't know how to act says, are you okay? <laughs> Um, because <laughs> the word no is also, it's not, it's not good enough. No, I'm not okay. That doesn't even begin to describe what I'm feeling right now. 
Um, that's why that question is is meaningless. This hits it a strange thing for me because it's something where, uh, as an ex Christian, um, haven't haven't been a Christian for a long, long time. Because I grew up in America, so obviously at some point you get taken to a church. Um, <laughs> uh, that, that's the short version of that. It was a little bit more traumatic for me because it, Christianity, but um, uh, yeah. but there's there's a notion within that um that actually shows up a lot within all of the Abrahamic religions, but it seems to be most prevalent in Christianity in a certain way of apocalypsis, um, mm -hmm. to use the Greek term. And it's this theological notion. It's an eschatological one as well, which means that deals with the end of the world. And it, it itself is a linguistic tesseract, which is an important feature for this. It becomes the only way. So uh, part of my approach to this as well is that I'm I'm on the spectrum. Part of the way that my brain is wired to work is I feel often this profound gap between the feeling self and the thinking self. Like I can feel that gap there. And it's like being electrocuted in a certain way. Like you you yeah. over I will overstate things or over explain things in this desperate, impossible struggle to unite these two things which are obviously united at the base. There's some fundamental thing about how the brain works. These are coming from the same thing. But the way that I experience them is like these two, like like a, like a binary planetary system or something. And it, it can drive you really crazy. Um, you, add, you add PTSD and bipolar and shit on top of that. And, oh boy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's where these sort of... <laughs> This is the part where I defend German idealists as well. Um, German idealists are are less are better thought of not as philosophers but as poets who think philosophically, and I think mm -hmm. from that perspective they become a lot more useful. Um, they don't perform the same function as analytic philosophers. They don't perform the same function as Marxist or materialist philosophers. Um, very obviously, I don't. I don't think even people <laughs> who unabashedly like them would pretend that these are the same type of thinker. Um, they're very obviously yeah. different. Fichte wrote beautifully in a way that most more analytic philosophers just don't. Most of most analytic philosophers are very bad writers. Um, which is fine because their job is to think, not to. Meanwhile, Fichte, you're reading him and you're like, oh God, this is beautiful. I'm not sure how correct any of this is, but oh God, it's very very good to read with yeah. my with my eyes um and Deleuze sort of became the big savior of a lot of that stuff he's the guy who um reworded approaches of it so that it could fit and that's where we get sort of post-structuralist leftist philosophy stuff um there's a lot of contentious stuff in there as well but my point is that grabbing on to these more poetic notions that have deliberately an internal vastness apocalypsis is meant to grab onto the entirety of the spiritual and physical collapse of reality that is the rise of the antichrist the judgment day the opening of the gates of hell but also the opening of the gates of heaven the the resurrection of the dead like all of these things which are of metaphorical vastness. They are like what we described in earlier episodes, structurally so large that you can't grasp one of them, let alone all of them as a grand system. It's deliberately bigger than thought. 
And that becomes necessary for these kinds of things. On a personal end, I would tell my brother about how panic attacks would literally leave me paralyzed on a couch. And that's why I was failing in college for a period because I literally could not move, which meant I could not go to class, which meant often I couldn't eat, um, which meant often I wasn't like beyond not bathing. I was literally staying like in the same bed for like four or five days straight without yeah. moving whatsoever. Not going to be shocking for people who've dealt with it. And he thought that I was just being lazy or whatever. And we dealt with familial stuff with sim similar to you, Eden. My dad was in Vietnam, which is, you know, America's Vietnam War or Vietnam's Vietnam War. <laughs> <laughs> uh, came back with PTSD and the, the similar rub in him of you go there as an idealistic young man and in the midst of it you realize that you're on the wrong side of the war committing horrible things but also if you don't you will personally die and the the that's mind-breaking like he had two confirmed kills and they were both young vietnamese boys around the same age as him and the thought of like they're on the ground and I'm standing because they were born here and I was born in America. That's the only reason. There's nothing about how good or bad they were. They were someone's son. They are defending their home the way that I would. Be. Like, that messes with you in a very profound way. Um, that dealt with, that created problems at home as, as, or someone returning with PTSD often does. And then the fact that my dad also had bipolar disorder, which is where I get it from, um, led to chaos in the home. So my brother was very flippant about a lot of this stuff because being my older brother, they, they had a very contentious, very, very contentious relationship. Again, not uncommon in these situations. I would mm -hmm. tell him about my struggles and he'd be like, you're just being like, dad, you got to blah, 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 blah. And I was, I stopped talking to him for a while. Then one day he reaches out to me and he's just like, I get it now. And I was like, what? And he basically, he said exactly what you said, Eden, where he was like, I never really got what you talked about. And I only realize now that I never got it, even though you were telling me in pretty clear words that I do understand now because I hadn't had a panic attack and I just had one about a week ago and I get it now. Yeah. It, it's it's that pure that pure experiential thing that ironically makes art much better at grasping it than clinical things. This is where sometimes the poeticism of philosophy can sometimes grasp it by spooling out, by deliberately fraying at the edge so that it it disintegrates. Um, but art. So I, I actually actually want to touch. On that oh, point, and say something that is possibly contentious and, and a hot take, um, but I think Deleuze would agree with me, um, <laughs> as would Nietzsche and a bunch of other good dudes. Um, I think other philosophy actually represent two different responses to these problems um and they both have their advantages and disadvantages but i think out of the both of them out for me at least does a better job at untangling these 
webs and I'll, I'll, I'll explain what I mean. I think when you study philosophy or, or when you study any academic uh, term, you start off because you're taught to start off with this idea that we're not talking about Descartes, the person, right? This is the author, Descartes. This is the detached um, argument-making machine that we have called Descartes because of financial structures, but we don't care about Descartes' life. Um, and then you go on to read postmodernism, um, and you find out that that's bullshit. There is no difference between Descartes' um, meditations and Descartes' shopping list, or Descartes' journal, or what he said to a person on the street. Um, they're all part of René Descartes. Um, and I only harp on him because he's such a good example, since he attempted to divorce himself from his ideas as well, um, or rather his history from his ideas. And what that means is, and, and this is for me when, when the, the uh, penny dropped, it, it was one of my teaching assistants that, that told us this. Descartes cried at some point in his life, many times probably. Um, Descartes was afraid and he was scared and he was jubilant and happy and he orgasmed and he ate food and he went to war, probably maybe killed someone or someone shot at him. He did all those things. And he also wrote the meditations and, and, and separating the meditations or whatever text you want to go with from Descartes' prolific career from those experiences is, is ridiculous. It's, it's absurd. And yet, philosophy has spent 2,500 years, depending on how you count exactly its birth, trying to do just that. It's only been like 100 years, or maybe 200, if I'm, if I'm nice to like Kierkegaard and people like that, where, where life um, was conceived, the philosopher's life was conceived as an important part of philosophy, and not just as a parable not just as a metaphor, which is where Kierkegaard kind of like falls into the same trap in many of his texts, right? Like his life as, as metaphor. Um, whereas art, I think, except for the most sterile of the, of the forms, like, you know, religious arias or whatever, although even those can be read ironically or sarcastically or however you want to read them, has always been about this. It's always been about how do I do something economically, by which I mean without waste, but I also encompass everything. How do I, by playing a piano note or, har or plucking a harp string, how do I put into those exercises what I had for lunch today, um, what I'm afraid of, what I'm looking forward to, what excites me, what makes me sad? Obviously not at the same time, but in, 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 different, in different moments. Now, which one is inferior or superior is, is to miss the point, right? It's just, it's different. And sometimes you need philosophy. You need to put things in a box or, or try to look at them from the outside, which is a loaded term when talking about Deleuze and like Foucault is like creeping in here. Um, but, but sometimes you need art because you want to experience a totality of something or an unmediated 
image of something that's less cleaned up. And then the real trick is how do you do both of them? And at the same time, I think that brings us back to German idealism and specifically German idealism's um, wayward son, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Who was the master, and you can say whatever you want about him, but he was the master of doing art while doing philosophy and doing philosophy while doing art. Um, and at the end here, and again, I'm, I'm pushing us to what our leaves because it's kind of <laughs> like hovering over this discussion. This is where I think that desire is where theory fiction comes from, right? Um, and now there's a big old question, is House of Leaves theory fiction? Which I think is a very interesting question to ask, and we'll talk about genre later. But even if you don't, if you want to leave that untouched, um, people like, in, in case people don't know what theory fiction is, I don't blame you, because it's not that common of a term. Reza Nagastani, for example, um, even though he's a fucking, uh, not Nagastani, even though he's a fucking neoconservative, Nick Land um, does theory fiction, Mark Fisher, um, and others of the ilk. It's when you do fiction, but that fiction is telling the story of a theory, of a philosophical theory. Um, and that's an attempt, 99% of it completely fails, um, to synthesize the totality of art, the, the unmediation of art with this um, rigidness and, and, and direct gaze of uh, philosophy. And, and somewhere on that spectrum, um, House of Leaves exists. So we're going to take a break for some music, and then we're going to hop right into the book. Um, we were talking about specifically having... A, so normally we do uh, newer music on this, for, for obvious reasons. Part, part of using a platform as much as we can to point at you know records that we think are great, bands that we think are great, especially ones that are relatively underground. Uh, but um, as we were just chatting kind of half aimlessly on uh on twitter about this um a friend of the show um jamila from uh ithaca who we've had on the show before and a lovely lovely person chimed in basically saying this is her favorite book of all time so we're like we're gonna put an ithaca track on because uh <laughs> your band is tight uh we love you as a person and uh why not uh they recently did a really really awesome uh cover of Hold Fast Hope by Thrice. Yeah. Another great band. Adore them. Um, so just seems a perfect thing to throw on. Um, uh, yeah, don't don't have a lot to say about this other than like, I love Thrice a lot. It's from a record of theirs called Vesu that um, a lot of... It, it's uh, you, you can sort of determine what kind of Thrice fan people are by what when they hopped on to enjoying the band. Um, I'm not as hot on their, on their like mathy post hardcore stuff, which is weird considering I normally love that stuff a lot. I think they do like a great job with that stuff. I'm not trying to knock it whatsoever, but this was the record for me where they started to clean it up into more of a, um, scare quotes, traditional progressive rock or art rock kind of shape that I, it, it, this is what made me finally go, Oh, this band is really good. Um, and I've been a fan since I'm not sure. Do you? Are, how do you have feelings about the band Thrice, Eden? 
the only feeling that I have about them is of a missed opportunity because no matter how much I try, I can't get into them. And I know that I should. All the parts are there, but it never really clicked for me. Well, it happens. I mean, we, we, all, have, we all have things yeah. like that. I um, love Ithaca, though. Yeah, Ithaca is great. Um, they're, uh, for anyone who somehow hasn't heard Ithaca, but, but has heard of our <laughs> show, which is that that's a, that's going to be a very small Venn diagram. Um, uh, they're, they're a metalcore band, but in the way that like, like earth crisis or coalesce is metalcore. Like not, not, I mentioned this because I'm of a certain age where the term metalcore is kind of a loaded term it makes me think more often of bands like shadows fall or all that remains or certain periods yeah. of lamb of god or things like that which still technically that is metalcore but they are when the term when the only thing that the term means is an overlap of heavy metal and extreme metal thoughts with hardcore and hardcore punk um and some alternative rock there's obviously a lot of ways that you can combine those two and they'll all technically be metalcore, but they can be very different. This leans on the type of metalcore that I connect with, like, you know, your converges and things like that, where it's just like, I go nuts for it. Um, as opposed to these other types of metalcore, which I, I don't mean to knock them. They just aren't as much my thing. God, I love Ithaca. <laughs> yep. So this is Ithaca with Hold Fast Hope, uh, a cover of a song by Thrice. Thank you. 
All right, and that was Ithaca with Hold Fast Hope. Um, I hope they have a, a new record coming out sooner rather than later. I know they've they've been sort of tinkering uh, with stuff due to the pandemic, but I am... Uh, and the record, th their last record only came out last year. I'm just hungry for more Ithaca. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> well, right, let's... So uh... Let's hunt Moby Dick. Yes. Um, but not not actually Moby Dick. Um, one of my most heretical takes is that Moby Dick is a bad book. That's a um, terrible take. We're going to have to fight <laughs> about that on air at some point. Uh, I'm the other... We've talked about this before. I'm the other guy who studied literature. The guy who fucking loves Moby Dick. <laughs> You're going to okay, say okay. some shit about Joyce being bad, and I'm going to have to fly to Israel to fight you. <laughs> well, there's a pandemic, so I'm safe. Um, mm. No, I'm joking. <laughs> let's let me just say it depends. Let's let's close the let's close the book <laughs> on that. Um, House of Leaves. So when we were talking about doing this episode, we were like, we don't we don't need to introduce this. Like to be honest, introducing House of Leaves is, gosh, it's a faux pas, right? Yeah. Um, this book is so okay. So it's not really popular in mainstream circles at all although it has kind of trickled into them in the last few years but it is overly saturated anything that is somehow underground adjacent like it doesn't matter which scene you're from if you're like slightly to the left of the mainstream house of leaves is everywhere there's a fucking xkcd strip about it okay that, that, that's how popular it is and it is also popular with that very specific subset of 90s Gen X on the border of millennial internet geek. So your Cory Doctorows and stuff like that. Not, not that I'm dissing them, right? Like those people, some some really clever guys who did some great things. But that's really like the subset of um of the of the people who have been pushing this novel for as long as it has been pushed. And also the the New York literary scene, um, which the author was a big part of. Um, is, is this is like the entry level book, and we're at the phase of its life that it's up there with stuff like Infinite Jest or Blood Meridian or books like that that a pretentious first year undergrad trying to get laid would put on their bookshelf to impress a certain date. I'm that, trying not to get mad at your at your words about Blood Meridian because I know exactly what you mean, and you're not you're <laughs> not wrong. And it's not a judgment so, of the book. There is a certain type of person. Oh God, yeah. I love Blood Meridian. I gotta call. So, <laughs> so I gotta I gotta I gotta uh, uh, from the outset here with Infinite Jest excluded because I genuinely think it's a bad book. Same. Um, <laughs> Blood Meridian and House of Leaves and fucking. Uh, Come on, scream tells across the sky. Uh, gravity's, gravity's rainbow. Gravity's rainbow. Gravity's rainbow. rainbow. Um, these are the books and the crying of Lot. What is it? Ninety three or something. Forty nine. Forty nine. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't close at all. That's fine. All of these books are like. Again, I'm saying this without judgment. It's baby's first weird books, right? Um, they're still fucking great. They're all great books, but they're also what gets pushed at the onset of the genre. And that's basically what I want to say. That's fine. It's fine to talk about House of Leaves. Even if it's not the most sophisticated pick, even if it's, yes, it's used by pretentious people who 
read like four weird books in college and then suddenly, you know, have a monocle and smoke a pipe and tell you that you're an idiot. It's still a good book. Um, I mean, we, we, we run into this kind of problem a lot. It's, it's sort of a problem of overexposure or a problem of we collapse an art object with the most vocal fan base of that art object. And yeah. then our judgment of one bleeds into the judgment of the other because, and there's admittedly some validity in that because we view if art, art isn't just the object itself. Art is also the ripples it generates in the world and the ripples, the resonances that it uh, causes people to have in response. I don't yeah. think that's actually, there's anything actually wrong with that. Um, it's the same basis by which we condemn certain kinds of art as politically or socially problematic because they generate some really gross malfaisance to be to be brief on that. Um, but I mean, obviously, being annoying is not the same as being a Nazi, but they operate psychologically from the same vehicle, which is that this non-literal, non-real object, aka art, aka a fancy codified lie that you bought on purpose can change the way that you interact with the world and with yourself. So, okay, all that, all that's fair and stuff. But then it turns into... People will radically overextend this often. Um, and basically the books that, that Eden just listed wind up being caught in the crossfire of this. Yeah, You likewise get things like Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake by Joyce again get caught in the crossfire in this. There are points where people will feel like I'm too big for Philip K. Dick now. I have to say that he's bad and I need to pick a new weird offer because he's too, I don't want to be that guy who says Philip K. Dick is good. Now, people who are a little bit more, I, I'm just going to say it, a little bit more mature are like, what are you talking about? Philip K. Dick is good. Like people can be annoying about him, but are you going to say he's bad? Um, yeah. And with certain works, we, they're allowed to come full circle over a certain amount of time that it's like, yes, they can be your introduction to a world. And ideally the introduction becomes just that it, it's an opening door. Um, and then you get, uh, once you're initiated through this occult ritual of the, you know, the initiating experience, um, you're brought out into this broader magical plane. Um, of course I have to use the occult for a metaphor there. Um, <laughs> obviously, uh, yeah. but, we even see this in music somewhat. We're seeing a, a current wave of pushback against bands like uh, Mastodon and Baroness and Kailessa and Intronata is somehow lesser than because now we're oh so much more hip and like oh so much more real arty or real extreme stuff. While simultaneously the same people are telling us that Corn and Limp Bizkit have always been good. This isn't to say that either one of those statements is wrong. It's just that the exact yeah. same thing was said about Corn and Limp Bizkit for a period after their heyday, that it was like, oh, you know, we're beyond that. Remember how silly we were. And House of Leaves is unfortunately caught in that that middle space right now, where there's a, num a number of people who, I guarantee, several years ago would have been enamored with the book and would have been enamored with it in a sincere, if maybe a naive way, that they'd never encountered um the kind of type a lot typographical play that um which is this is an important aspect of the book mark danielewski didn't start as an author he started as literally a typesetter and a graphic designer and a lot of the impetus of the book as it was because it was initially published online chapter by chapter but not yeah. 
chapter one than chapter two. He was just he was writing whichever chapter moved him the most and publishing it the second it was done. So it may have been chapter 7 was the first one posted, then chapter 2, then chapter 15. They're not numbered that way, but, you know, thinking in sequence, it may have been that. Um, and a lot of his thought was just, how do I capture this kind of feeling or what's ways I can approach text? And I'm I'm a graphic designer and a typesetter, so why don't I just, like, what if the words spiral on the page? What if the words are inconsistent size? What if they created design? What if there are corridors that are built in the text of footnotes that are reversed and moving in reverse order? Certain people will be like, holy shit, that sounds really cool. And other people, maybe even listeners, will go, I've heard this before. That's like what the Dadaist, that was their whole thing, literally. If you've yeah. read any Dadaist literature, their whole thing is playing with the form post-structuralist plays, uh, things where you don't know who is an actor in the play and who is an audience member, and bits where it looks like the crew is coming out to deal with something, but this is part of the... Like, these have been part of the art world for a while, that sort of formal interrogation of what... Con alternate reality games is another thing that we saw a massive explosion of for a period. And that's true, but this ignores that there's still a validity that, like... Regardless of how we feel about people who maybe got too vocally impressed by House of Leaves, it did introduce people to that. I mean, this is the same thing we go back to with, with Gravity's Rainbow and with Blood Meridian and things like that, is that, no, not every single person who read them went on to get a PhD or went down the rabbit hole of, like, weird, intense Gnostic literature or, you know, all this other. But some of them did. And some of them who did that wouldn't have done that without these things. That's that's how all art works. It's like not everyone who hears Metallica goes on to, you know, form the next great heavy metal band, but some yeah. do. And the ones that do wouldn't have done that without. And a lot of a lot of the benefit that brings me back to this book isn't just those fundamentals of regardless of how a fan base can become frustrating with something. So um the it it's this other part, the part that we wanted to talk about, is that when I see these typeset designs on the page of the, the shift, when he forces me to spin the book around as I'm doing it, yeah, I could get caught up in the, the anti-art sentiment of like, this is a gimmick. It's like, all art's a gimmick, you dumb, you dumb idiot, just, just go with it. Um, <laughs> but like that that's a silly response like uh he's just telling a story that isn't true to make me feel things I was like congratulations that's what novels are um but uh, uh the the reason why we wanted to talk about this so much is e even thinking conceptually this is the part that i get caught up the shifting walls of a pitch black labyrinth buried in your home in a secret door that is or isn't there sometimes, and that if you map it, doesn't correlate. This is, regardless of anything else about the book, that is a perfect metaphor for the cavernous abyssal depths so of of I, anxiety and depression. I want I want to reel this back for a <laughs> second because I want to do what the book does, which is take the reader through the layers that are being told to us right um let's go on a journey not to not to chide you for that brilliant intro i agree with everything <laughs> you said um 
I just, I'm just uh, uh, proposing a different perspective on the same idea. So once we've cleared out the debris of like, yeah, the fans are assholes. Okay, we've cleared that debris out and it's really popular. Okay, whatever. Now we, we, we can ask, okay, so what is interesting to ask about House of Leaves or what interesting concepts, like you said, um, does the book introduce us to? And there's one concept that I don't see used very often, which I think is very important to understand what House of Leaves is doing to us. And I, I, I use that term specifically, um, doing to us. Um, and that is ergodic literature. Um, ergodic literature is a term coined by a guy called Aspen Arseth. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It has a double A in the beginning. Um, he's a guy uh, who was born in the 60s in Norway. He's done a bunch of stuff about video games and electronic literature. Um, he has a PhD in, about this stuff. And he coined this term to describe texts um, that stretch the concept of reading. Right? So there's a few levels to this. Non-ergodic literature is standard books. There is no physical effort involved in reading them. You just consume the letters and the words and the sentences and the paragraphs as you are used to consuming text. So if you can give an example, even really tough books like Being in Time or The Critique of Pure Reason or stuff like that, they're still non-ergodic because you're just reading them with your eyes. And then ergodic literature is literature that requires you to do something else. Like, for example, turn the book or read just a corner of a page, as one of um, House of Leaves' most annoying sections does. Um, or uh, uh, folding the page, for example. And then the other level above that is the, a type of ergodic literature, which Alsef calls cybertext. And cybertext is text that requires some calculation to be made to know what the next part of the text is. So the most common example is the I Ching, right? Like you um, cast a die, basically, or a very complex type of die, but that's basically what you do, and you read the corresponding text. Or, for example, a chatbot. You give it input, it performs calculations, and provides output. The text of your conversation requires calculation. Now, on, on the surface level, House of Leaves is ergodic. That's obvious. Um, some parts of it include blank pages. Some parts of it have a world, a single world on a page. You have to turn it down. Some parts are cut off and so on. But is it a cybertext? That is, do you need to make a call or a calculation about which part to read next? And there are two answers here. First answer is, Unsurprisingly, no, it's not a cybertext. You are meant to read House of Leaves from the first page to the last page. And on the way, you do like ergodic exercises, but you don't need to ask yourself whether you should turn the page or not. Spoiler, I don't agree with that. I think it is a cybertext because of the footnotes and how they send you forwards to other. Uh, parts of the book. And if you've read the edition that almost everybody has read, it also sends you to um, like a little uh, addendum 
included in that edition called the Whalestow Letters, which is the letters written by the protagonist's mother, open parentheses, or by him, it is unclear, um, as she languishes in a mental institution. And I am footnote, so OG that I had to buy these two separately. Ah, yeah. <laughs> and a man, a man of the, culture. Mine is the rare one that didn't actually have any uh, like embossing where the, the reference in the colophon of the full color text hadn't actually been made yet. Incredible. So... <laughs> These kind of like breadcrumbs tell you, oh, you should go and read this letter. It's up to you to do so if you want to. And some parts will tell you, skip ahead in the story. Like, go and read the fourth chapter of this segment to understand this part. Do you? Like, do you do it? Do you skip ahead? And even deeper, what happens when you encounter that chapter again? Do you reread it? Do you skip it? Now, why is this important? Because it is doing something to us. The book is involving us in the act of reading beyond, quote-unquote, just the ergodic part of it, that is a physical involvement. It is also giving us, quote-unquote, an intellectual involvement because we are calculating, we are making decisions, we are getting involved. So I actually want to make a brief segue here, a sidestep to role-playing games, like Disco Elysium, for example, or others, well, your gameplay is the gameplay. Yeah, you can restart, but you'll get a different story each time. And that makes it you feel more invested. Same thing here. My House of Leaves is my House of Leaves. I chose to skip parts that others didn't. I chose to read some of the letters first. I read the Wearstow letters, and they freaked me out so bad that I had to stop reading for a month. Um, and so on. All of which to say, and this is where I come back to what you said, the point of House of Leaves and the reason that it is so powerful is that it, it lulls you into a false sense of security by being a book. But it's operating on you. It's doing things to you. It is setting you up for um, new ways to think about things. It, it, it creeps into you. And... I know it's like entry level or whatever, going back to the debris that we described before, but House of Leaves scared me, genuinely scared me to my core. Like I still sometimes, you know, I wake up at night to get a glass of water and I'm like, oh, did that wall just move? Then I go into the spiral of like hyperventilation. And um, anyone who doesn't believe me, you can ask my partner. Like I, I couldn't put it down. I wasn't sleeping well. It really got to me. And for me, it was because I was... I was active. I was making choices. And those choices sometimes led me to like terrible things. Like in the Wellstow letters, again, trigger warning, um, the act of graphomania is depicted in excruciating details. And that triggered a, like a full-on anxiety attack for me. Like imagining this character writing it, writing a name, specifically she writes the name of the protagonist, or he's writing his own name, depending on which reading you want to go with, over and over and over and over again. That, that, that really upset me because I chose to open to that page. I didn't have to do it. So I think for me, that is the brilliance of House of Leaves. Um, and if I may, one last example that really captures that like false sense of security. There's a, there's a spoilers. There's a segment in the book I don't know if you remember it. Well, you, you've 
for sure remember it. A footnote that details everything that's not in the house. Yes. Um, it's a footnote that details all of the objects that are not in the house and their different types. So it's not just a cabinet, but it's a, an oak cabinet and a pine cabinet and a small cabinet and large cabinet. And it's a footnote that goes on for pages. And it's so boring. You read like the first page, maybe he's hiding like a message in here because it's the middle of the book. So you already know to look for like weird shit. But it, there's nothing there. It's just mundane. And then what you do is you start to flip, right? Like, when does this end? When does this end? When does this end? And then you turn the page and there's you're lulled. You're not expecting it. You're in this doldrum of, of turning the page. And then you turn the page and there's a blank page and it says, there is nothing in the house. Picture it. In your dreams, picture it. And that's it. And it's fucking terrifying because you were in this like automated mode of flipping through the pages. You were being bombarded with a data bomb, basically, with a mimetic weapon bombarding you with information. And then suddenly the, 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 the interlink is severed, the information stream stops, and something jumps into your head and commands you to imagine something, an emptiness, a nothingness, um, which is so powerful. So for me, those are the segments that really capture why this book is so effective and so effective at talking about mental states because it, it modifies your mental state as you read it. I become a defender of this book, and I, I, I went through a phase where I, I would also, um, surprise, I went to grad school for literature, so you read a certain amount of things, and you start, uh, whether you want to or not, becoming a certain type of person. It will happen. Um, this is, anyone who's been in graduate or beyond studies will know what I'm talking yeah. about with that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it just, uh, it, it's a tragedy, but it does occur. Um, but at a certain point, there was sort of an epiphany that hit me. So one of the things that I studied was um, literature as game and literature as Gnostic experience and literature mm -hmm. as like eruptive. Um, transformative is too small of a word, but like trying to look at the relation that say someone who's ardently faithful and ardently religious has with uh, the Tanakh has with the Bible has with the Quran. That's very different from what someone has with like a Jody Pakal novel. They're both books. They're both books that you read. You read them in roughly the same way, but argument there, I, I'm putting a flag on that one. Cause that's obviously the point of this whole thing. Um, <laughs> but, but, the the relational experience is radically different and it's not just because you believe the events in one book are describing literal reality and the other ones aren't that's an important part obviously it's the same reason why our relation to a non-fictional text or one that's presumably non-fictional is different from a fictional one like i have the argument that a million little pieces by james frey a book that's radically false becomes a tremendously powerful novel precisely because of the metafictional act of telling people that it is not a novel. It helps bridge that gap of uh, the suspension of disbelief or in sort of lay terms, but in grad school terms, basically like 
recognizing that literature is inherently a type of game, regardless of the form of it. That's one thing that I really love about House of Leaves, like love, capital L, love. Because the ideal reader of House of Leaves, for me, is someone who doesn't read House of Leaves and go, wow, House of Leaves does a really good job with that, but who reads it and recognizes that it is trying to tell you that this is what books are. Yeah. All books. Because it, by, uh, part of the act of the physicality of the ergodic notion of it is you can start making a connection to the reality of reading any given book of how long does it take you to read a page? How long does it take you to read a page compared to someone else? How long do you take a break between reading sessions? Um, when you open the book up, do you start at the exact word that was the next word to read? Or do you reread a portion? If you realize that you're kind of lost, you go back a bit. Um, we have a natural ebb and flow. There's a breath to reading that you don't have with something like a film. Specifically because films are a set tempo. They're, they're set by the frames per second. They're set by the filmmaker. The, it, they're set by the cinematographer in the editing booth, all these kinds of things. And there's a power to that. And I don't mean to deride that at all. But one unique thing about specifically reading that you really only have a parallel of in games is that it's by nature interactive, especially if it's prose only. How much of this are you picturing, actually picturing in your mind? Or perhaps you can't picture things because there are some people who literally can't have image-based imagination. It's all language-based imagination. Likewise, mm -hmm. there's people who don't have language-based imagination. And so how do you bridge certain elements of, you know, certain Spanish poets who are so richly imagistic? What does that become for you when you can't imagine the image you're imagining the word? House of Leaves becomes this profound tutorial in how to think not of just itself, as a type of game or computation, but sort of then reflecting back to you that, like, this is what books are. Ironically, I think the people who feel that they've grown out of it and roll their eyes at it have gained exactly what they needed to from it. This is like, and not saying that they need to go back <laughs> and suddenly say that it's good, but it's like, you look at that and go, good, the lesson took hold. You don't need this anymore because now you can ideally see that all around you and you don't need to return to the thing that taught you. It does mean that maybe you shouldn't be so flippant in saying that it's bad, more that just like some people don't need to reread a certain book. Some people need to reread it seven times over the course of their lives. Totally fine. But even that bit that you brought up about text as computation, one, I totally agree with it. But two, this is, again, unsurprisingly, considering I studied it, I think this is the same kind of epiphany that you can have when looking at why is a religious text different personally than a non-religious text? Um, and it's on some level, you don't, you don't read the Bible starting on page one, going all the way through. <laughs> that would be an insane person. Uh, however, this is a unique viable read. Likewise, you don't read the Quran that way. You don't read uh, the Talmud that way. You wouldn't read the Talmud like a book. Like you wouldn't go like, what's page yeah. one? And you know, you could, but that would be, you'd be missing so much context. Even this notion of intertextuality um, 
House of Leaves, I think, is really powerful as well if it is in two volumes of the main book and then the Whale's Toe Letters, because then you have the additional, it adds to that computation ele computational element you brought up. You have to think, I have to close a book that I'm currently reading and pick up a second book and open it if I want to do this. Or, not that obviously that isn't present if it's in one volume, but like it, it, it has layers of ways that you can approach those same questions that you then start seeing all around you. We even ha we have in history the, inter the profound intertextuality of things like Arthurian legend, where it spoiler alert there is no Arthurian legend. Scare quote. There's no capital A capital L Arthurian legend where it's here's yeah. the complete story from beginning to end because some versions are so contradictory that like things couldn't have happened. You are making a choice, an active choice, literally like a video game or a visual novel, to assemble a set. But there is so many polymorphic, contradictory, uh, plural sets. This is actually what I, I mentioned this on a recent episode of Right Good. I'm not sure when it's going to come out. That's one of the things I loved about the book, The Turn of the Screw, and hated about The Haunting of Bly Manor, is that the book had nine, ten, thirty different reads you could have, and they all would answer some questions, but would leave some not just unanswered, but impossible. And there was, there was no way to assemble it correctly. And then the show was just like, no, no, here, I'm going to have a whole episode explaining mechanics. Like, wisely, House of Leaves doesn't do that. He never answers about the house, about the Minotaur, about the shifting walls, about there's something that I think about a lot is specifically things like the well in yeah. the house yeah. or within the labyrinth. That's an image that just sticks with me. So for me, what sticks with me, and this is a perfect segue to, to what I wanna, wanted to bring up, is, is, is there a beast? Um, so, so throughout the book, there's this idea of a hound or, or a beast, canine probably, um, that is either, it's, it's at the bottom of the house, um, but it's also haunting Johnny um, in real life, quote unquote. Um, and in the house, it is explained as the growl of the walls shifting, which is not a fucking explanation, by the way. Um, yeah. Or rather, it's an explanation that makes things even more complicated. And quote unquote, in real life, in Johnny's um, story, it is very clearly a metaphor uh, for anxiety. Right? Um, he has several panic attacks throughout the book. The most uh, strong one is at the tattoo shop or above the tattoo shop, right? He goes to get some ink and he just drops everything and he can hear the hound breathing down his neck and he freezes and he pisses himself and it's a really powerful scene um but the question is there a hound is there actually some sort of like huge dog haunting um the house and maybe johnny because of because he read the the article or whatever um is left unanswered and i think that's where the book starts to say really interesting things about mental health and authenticity and it kind of goes back to to what we said about about Fichte like if you're hearing a dog breathing down your neck it doesn't really matter if the dog is real or not you're already fucked like you're already in a bad place even if you're like it, there's no dog okay 
but you're at the bottom of an infinite house with shifting labyrinths. Is that are you like in a pedal position because there's no dog? So it's kind of the same thing with with mental disorders and like illnesses. You're not gonna die. There's no heart attack. Um, you're not having a stroke. Uh, these are like common things that I think that I'm having while I'm having a panic attack. But you're still fucked because you still feel those things. And um, you're still in the labyrinth, uh, shifting, and the exit is nowhere to be found. So yeah, there's no dog, there's no uh, thing coming to kill you. But the, the the very fact that you thought it was there means that you're lost, um, that something is wrong. And, and for me, that was that was extremely powerful um, as I was reading it because it it made me it made me face the fact that Johnny who is a stand-in for the reader and for um, Danilovsky himself, um, it doesn't matter how his story ends. It doesn't matter like what happens to him or, or if he got out, quote-unquote, or stuff like that. Um, the very fact that he took this shit so seriously, that it changed his life so much, that he dove so deep into this fake academic endeavor, is already an indictment of his mental condition, um, which is maybe a clever way to say, if you like this book, <laughs> you're already fucked. Um, if you're the type of person that like this book really impacted, um, I didn't put that, that in your head. I didn't. I didn't give you anxiety. I didn't give you all these things that made you resonate with these characters. They were there before you picked this up. Um, and if you resonated with the story of shifting mental conditions and being lost and infinite houses and stuff like that, then maybe there's something going on with you. Um, at least that's how I felt. I, I, I'm sure a lot of people read this and felt none of this. Right? They just moved on. Were like, cool book. <laughs> but for me, um, there was this impact of like, um, I'll tell you a true story. Confession time. It's kind of embarrassing, but I'll tell it anyway because this is a safe space. For for ages, like for literal years, like three or four years, when I finished the book, probably without noticing, I put it upside down. Like you could see the text, but it was the wrong way around, top uh, bottom to top. And whenever I would go past it, I would look at it that way and I would say, should I correct it? Should I like flip it back? And I'd say to myself, no, 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 it's, it's better this way. Um, I won. <laughs> like this is my power over the book. I can now do with this book whatever I want. I can put it upside down. I can throw it in the trash. This, the, it was my way to exercise power over this book because it really did fucked up things to me. Um, and that was my way to like gain some power back, which is, you know, childish and stupid and whatever but that that's how much it it, it impacted me that's why i told that story because it really really um went to the core of me right and i still think about it almost every week and i'll never read it again <laughs> never just because i don't have that that amount of time anymore that i had in, in undergrad school um but also because i don't fucking want to i don't want to you can't make me i have a i have a strange relationship with this book specifically because i say strange in a um hopefully hopefully this will make sense um 
this was the book that I discovered Borges through. Um, it was hmm. specifically by being moved by the depiction of being trapped in a labyrinth, but a labyrinth that shifts, that seems to have unique geography, but non-repeating geography. One of my favorite movies um, as a child, and it's still it's a very dear place to me, is is the film Labyrinth um, mm -hmm. for exactly the same reason. Like people will fixate on the like David Bowie, dance magic, all that kind of, and not to knock that. I like that stuff too. Um, but the thing that always caught me as a kid was this rich, you know, the, the Jim Henson studio films always had these like tremendously richly developed worlds. But that one was specifically a labyrinth that seemed to contain everything, but was external to everything at the same time, because obviously you could be, there was an outside to the labyrinth because she began outside the labyrinth, but within the labyrinth, there were cities, there were sewers, there were multiple castles, there was contradictory geography, there was these Escher-esque rooms where you could walk on the ceiling and someone could be walking on the walls and it, like something about that always grabbed me. Um, it's it touched on an experiential core specifically. It wasn't just that, oh, that's a neat image. It's like there's a feeling that I have that when I'm seeing this, whoever made this gets it. This came from somewhere and I feel that too. And maybe there aren't words for it, or maybe I just don't have the words for it, but this works. And then I discovered House of Leaves shortly after it got published, just because people on a forum I was on were buzzing about it. Um, power of internet forums. People will buzz about shit early. Um, <laughs> I pick it up. I The same thing hits me, and I'm, I'm grabbed by it. I'm grabbed both by the interactivity of the text. Because when it first came out, I think I was like 15 or 16. I was, I was pretty young. I was that probably the perfect age for this. And we, we spoke briefly about it. This is maybe a book that if you're like 45 and have read a ton of books, I'm not sure you'd feel the same way about it or would even get much of anything out of it compared to when you're between that that magic window of like 15 to 22, when you have questions about potentiality and whether the shapes around you are the shapes things have to be in or the shapes yeah. things can be in. This did exactly what I think any writer would hope a book did is I grabbed it. I read it, I put it down, and I immediately was like, where did this come from? How did he make this? And I got presented two stories, the, uh, the Library of Babel and the Garden of Forking Paths, both by Borges. And I was told they were in a book also fortuitously called Labyrinths. And so I was like, okay, this thing is assembling for me. And I find out Labyrinths has an introduction in its English edition written by William Gibson. And I had only just read Neuromancer <laughs> and it felt Stars like, aligned. exactly. It's like, especially for anyone who is a fan of literature, be it literary fiction, be it science fiction, be it horror, be it, there's that, there's that, like that road or that trail that feels like it's revealing itself to you in an oracular fashion. You look back and you know, there's actually market pressures, social pressures, uh, visibility, uh, accessibility, things like yeah. that, that, yeah. that shape this. But when you're feeling it, it feels like you're following the breadcrumbs and you feel compelled. And I pick up labyrinths and I read labyrinths and, um, Borges, my favorite author of all time. Now I have the, his complete works 
on my shelf that I stole from a library because I couldn't find it's the single volume complete works of Borge. Couldn't find it anywhere. Found it in the school library. And I was like, no, this is mine. This belongs to me. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not necessarily proud that I stole it from a school library, but because, you know, that is, but it, it was, yeah. You, you get overwhelmed by that thing. It led me to Paul Oster. It led me to certain elements of Philip K. Dick's work that I'd never read before because I associated him more with um, certain kinds of kitsch. And then House of Leaves indirectly put me on to like the Ubik and things like that. That, you know, and now I have the exegesis on my shelf as well, um, or the at least the published excerpts of it. So, like, this House of Leaves specifically for me represents that opening door and the fact that this this metaphor that's become very meaningful to me. I have a there is a thing that I wrote on uh, Medium uh, over the course of about a year and a half, and this was a couple years ago that I called Labyrinths, which was basically like an autofiction journal, somewhere between memoir, autofiction, and confessional of. Issues with my mental health, struggles with suicidality, struggles with addiction, struggles with paranoia. That because again, that specifically a black labyrinth with shifting walls was the beyond perfect way to describe this. And even in a certain way, even the social response to House of Leaves felt perfect for this metaphor to me. That it feels at once moving and really dumb, like. Uh, in uh, like eye opening, but also kind of flippant and cheap and gimmicky. Like the that that contradiction of ontology also felt. I feel that in heavy metal a lot, where you know you have a Devin Townsend record that for me like feels like it blows open my emotional doorways, and then someone else is like, "Damn, this is corny," and I'm like, "What? <laughs> what? Like I'm crying right now," and they're like, "Yeah, dog, you crying at some corny shit? Damn, <laughs> just like." How how are we not looking at the same object? Right, and there's this this touches on something it, for me personally about like living on on the autism spectrum, which for me thankfully isn't nearly as traumatic or difficult as it can be for some people. You know, not not trying to act like I have the worst, but there is often that that disconnect of you look at something and it feels like it's. I mean, I feel like this is part of what makes people like me and you Eden and then uh, Gareth as well and certain types of people get drawn towards philosophy because in a way that others aren't because philosophy in a certain way be becomes it feels like reading a novel like there's that experience you have where it's like it, it lives in that middle space between reading a religious text and reading a novel but that same ephemeral or uh, not ephemeral like effervescent glow I don't know how else to describe it. And this House of Leaves touched that for me. And it opened me up to a lot of other things. And it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to like sit back and accept when people are like, yeah, he's kind of a hokey author. Especially because this is almost the side point. I think the familiar is even better as like a book. Like if you were mm -hmm. to critique him for being like, oh, it's gimmicky and it just blah, 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 which I don't agree with. And I, know that you don't we both said that i think even those people if i were to put the familiar in front of them and go like you don't have to read all the volumes of it that are out that's especially because it looks like it's not going to be finished the publisher looks like they pulled the plug on the whole 
very ridiculous 27 volume <laughs> pitch i was like damn man that's i read manga so i'm in but you know I, most people i don't think are gonna but yeah that i think synthesizes all of the experiments and things that he does in this into a book that i think even those people couldn't really argue against it it's playful it has the typographical play it uses it to represent these different very very different moods like by ping-ponging uh the point of view around he's able to capture all these different angles and i know people got i think a lot of the negative response to house of leaves came from him first releasing the 50-year sword which as the immediate follow-up which a lot of people were confused by because it's admittedly more an art and poetry book than a novel but they were they approached it like a novel and went i don't like this it's not a good book and it's like well it's meant to just be pretty and moving it's an aesthetic object then he put out Only Revolutions, which admittedly was leaning a bit into his, like, I'm a gimmick kind of writer. And there's a lot of times where one sour work from from an artist, not just a novelist, but yeah, this happens in music too, can sometimes retroactively make people start throwing out things that are legitimately good. But I think, again, both... Both if you just wind the clock back to just the whale's toe letters in House of Leaves, or if you wind it forward to the to include the familiar, like he he's a good writer. I really don't get where where people are coming from. <laughs> like he's bad somehow, and it's like no, you got annoyed at a party because some dude that you slept with, who frankly from your stories is a piece of shit, had it on his shelf. This is a ridiculous reason to. It's like when we saw that post that said you should be worried if someone has Goethe on their shelf. And I'm like, what did his <laughs> art criticism do to you? Like, <laughs> I felt like I was I, going insane. Yeah, and I think at the outset of all of this, and maybe to bring this together, it, it's something that is um, under-spoken of when talking about House of Leaves. The and, and we just did it as well, and I think that's okay because it's a lot of the book. The darkness, the mental illness of it, the anxiety of it, the pressure of it, um, the horror of it. But this book is also very hopeful um, and has a lot of really powerful things to say to you and about coping and m- moving forward. And, and I really appreciate it for, for that. Um, it's not... I don't like when people call it a depressing book because I think there's like a pulsing um, core of hope and um, desire to fight that it is at the base of this book. And I, I want to read a quote. Um, and the context for this quote is one of the methods of dealing with anxiety attacks Um, maybe if people who are listening don't suffer from anxiety, they don't know, is a mantra, um, which is a sentence you can say that you can repeat to yourself and it helps keep your mind off what is happening and also regulate your breathing. Um, So if you use the cadence of the words to breathe properly, it becomes a mechanical thing because it's really hard to breathe properly when you're having an an anxiety attack. And my mantra is the litany against fear from Dune, from Frank Herbert's Dune. Um, I'm a big enough cornball that I actually have that on my wall. I I, I also have it on my wall. Unironically, 
are we the same person once again no, we're I, I literally the same person. <laughs> yeah i ha- i have it hanging above my bed um in <laughs> Um, and it's it's a really good mantra because it's split up into sentences. You can take a breath in and out between each one, and it's easy to remember. Um, and in House of Leaves, there's a part where Danielewski takes a shot directly at the litany against fear. Um, and when he does that, even though it's irreverent and taking a, a shot at something that I love, he does it really well, and it communicates the type of um, hope and struggle in House of Leaves. So I just want to read that part. It's a paragraph. I am not a fool. I am wise. I will run for my fear. I will outdistance my fear. Then I will hide for my fear. I will wait for my fear. I will let my fear run past me. Then I will follow my fear. I will track my fear until I can approach my fear in complete silence. Then I will strike at my fear. I will charge my fear. I will grab hold of my fear. I will sink my fingers into my fear. Then I will bite my fear. I will tear the throat of my fear. I will break the neck of my fear. I will drink the blood of my fear. I will gulp the flesh of my fear. I will crush the bones of my fear. And I will savor my fear. I will swallow my fear. All of it. And then I will digest my fear until I can do nothing else but shit out my fear. In this way... I will be made stronger. Yeah, I don't think there's any way to follow that up, so I think that's a good place for us to uh, call this one a wrap. I was about some music. That sounds good to me. Um, God, I I keep forgetting that quote. (laughs) really that's a really good one especially because of how oh no i'm gonna wax poetic first um (laughs) uh, very brief thoughts just like dune for me so i lost my father about 10 years ago hell of a way to start a story right um happens to everyone unless they die before their parents um or don't have a relationship with theirs um so you know not not trying to get um pity or sympathy there but he was very dear to me, despite the troubles of life, again, as as happens. One of the things that was really fond for me was growing up, us watching the, the Dune film together um, a lot. We would watch it a lot. He was obsessed with that movie, the David Lynch one, because it's the late 80s, early 90s. It's the only one that was out. Um, and I was too young to think of it as bad. It was just this movie that my dad loved and that I'd watch and that I would be obsessed <laughs> with. And the litanies of fear... So I got introduced to the litanies of fear when I was like two or three or something. It was like my dad would need to watch me. So he just put on this movie, sit me in his lap and I would. And it became this big thing when I got a little bit older and I, I got taught how to read relatively young, which I imagine that you and pretty much everyone else who's listening to this probably did too. One of the first things my dad did was when I was, I want to say eight, handed me his copy of Dune. And it was this big. It, actually, no, he didn't hand it to me. My uncle did because my dad gave it all of his copies of his Dune books to my uncle before he went to Vietnam um, or before he left home, something like that. I don't know the exact timeline, but basically it was gifted from my father to my uncle. And my uncle gifted all of them to me. And then I read all of them when I was like eight. So still in in that magic window where things can like really deeply imprint on you. And just the litany of fear became this like 
shield in a way that I can admit is 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 corny. I'm not going to pretend that it's not, <laughs> but it's like but also I feel it and it's a sincere thing. I you know, I'm not I'm I'm in my 30s. I don't care if it's corny to other people. That's fine. It's yeah. my life. Um but yeah, I and I remember hitting that part in House of Leaves and being moved literally to tears by it because of the way that it the way that it broke open the litanies of fear. Like the way that you're saying, it didn't even so much feel like a counter-read as it, much as it felt like a dialectical examination of it. Of this, like, cracking it open like a fruit and peeling back the skin and showing more and more of the flesh that had always been there, but that you couldn't always... And then I forgot it somehow. Every, like, every time I read it, it's like the first time that I've read it. <laughs> which is why at first I was just in stunned silence and now I'm rambling because it's just... Uh, God, that's good. Yeah, let's do some music. <laughs> so, if I may be so bold to to take this choice, um, unless you have something lined up, um, I was just gonna play Tribulation. Uh, unless you have something else that you really want to do, I just love Tribulation. I f- tribulation is great, but I have a song that was like made for this. Um, let's do that one then. Tribulation will still be there. Two. So. There's a group called Cinderwell. And Cinderwell do this kind of um, what's now being called transatlantic folk revival. So like folk that draws on Irish um, folk songs and um, English ones rather than American folk music, which also has Irish and English roots to it. but it, it like goes back to those things unfiltered by uh, more American traditions. And th- this group revolves around Amelia Baker, who is a single songwriter, and she worked with a bunch of groups, including a lot of anarchist folk stuff, before settling on Cinderwell. In July, they released No Summer, which is honestly one of the best folk albums i've ever heard i would um categorize it as like doom folk because it's very very slow and um quiet and non-boisterous in in ways that folk can be and it's very much of that kind of like um staring outside your porch or contemplating in, in an empty room that's kind of the vibe and on this album there is a track the third track called Our Ladies um, is in a, a possessive because it is about a mental asylum. The protagonist and the, that the song is told from the perspective of is the perspective of the structure as it experiences um, the people who frequent it. Now, it's an old asylum. So the people who frequent it aren't even necessarily suffering from mental illness. They can be vagabonds and homeless folk and alcoholics or just, quote-unquote, undesirables that society would like to do away with. Let's pretend all of that is in the past, although it still happens everywhere. Um, And on one end, the building loves those people. It, It feels for them and likes their company. So the building is sad when it gets closed down and those people leave. But it's also um, happy that that happens because it knows why those people are there, right? It knows that they're there because they're not well. 
it knows that they're there because they're suffering. So now that they're gone, it can imagine them living better lives. And it has some just amazing music and even better lyrics. And specifically, one passage is, is really relevant to our um, story here with House of Leaves, where the house says that, the asylum says that it, it loves them so much that its pipes burst, right? Like the pipes inside the walls burst from love. And it's kind of physicality of architecture, the physicality of structure and emotion and mental states blending together just seem to me very poignant and relevant to our discussion. And also it's a fantastic, fantastic album that I really, really want more people to, um, to hear about and hear of. And that's it. That's especially a, uh, a heartbreaking title for that. And it adds a, an ironic darkness to, to that considering our Lady's hospital was a, like um, a, the name of a number of hospitals in Ireland that had some very horrific um, uh, things tied to them. I mean, that, that's where we have like recent discoveries of like mass graves. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I pulled the record up once once you mentioned that. This sounds like it's going to move me to tears because, unsurprisingly, um, uh, I love folk music. So, uh, yeah, 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 we're, yeah, we're, um, so here is Cinderwell with Our Ladies. And join us back on the next one when we will um, hopefully not have gone insane uh, because of uh, America and the world. All right, here it is. They call me a ladies My arms cold and cinder block No one wanted to be here They toppled the gates with their eyes closed I was home to the shafts and the thieves And the drunks and the babies Out of wedlock Now I stand here Cold and alone Awakened by the wind in the doorway
A blank wall can destroy you It made everyone so quiet And I dream of crumbling so strongly my pipes burst and the walls fell with water the quarantine beds in the chamber